Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to listen to the Waterline podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. People ask me all the time, Shane, what's the future look like? Are we going to flourish? Are we are we going to drive ourselves to extinction? Are we going to destroy everything? Are we going to create heaven on earth? A big part of that incredibly complicated question is water. Water is absolutely fundamental to life. And knowing what is going on with water, the various technologies, the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water around the globe is really fundamental to understanding questions like that. And if you guys are into science and learning about things that affect our lives and the world, which I know you are, I believe the Waterline podcast is for for you. I just finished a episode called Water for All Regulation all about comparing the different regulations in different areas like the Israeli water law passed in 1959 and comparing how their system of of regulating water compares to California's model of regulating and how We might work together to figure out the best pros and the cons of different systems all around the world. Very, very important stuff. Please check out the Waterline podcast on your Android app and at the iTunes store. Hey guys, I have a lot to talk about today. We're going to have a heart-to-heart. We're going to get all caught up to speed on what's going on in my career and with the podcast. Uh, I'm making some big changes with the podcast lately and that I need to share with you guys moving forward. I'm so happy that this episode's actually coming out. I thought there was no chance. Uh, I did the same thing I always did, plugged my recording device, which is a uh, thing called a Zoom, for those of you in the know, into the soundboard, did the same thing I always do. Audio was completely worthless and unusable, fortunately. There were some cameras there recording uh, all the events at this psychedelic science conference, but it's also in this marketplace, and there's a million other things going on, and this stage is one small part of it, so people are looking around, you know, looking at uh, various artists work and stuff like that and and uh, so it just is not the best audio that we have had on here but I'm hoping that knowing that ahead of time will help you deal with it um, and uh, and and my my new editor uh, Jimmy by the way check out Jimmy Fro podcast for if you're into uh, indie music and and unsigned bands uh, he is uh, discovering all of them and doing cool interviews and uh, just an awesome way to find new music and um, and also Jimmy is kicking ass and making we I I believe we've had zero audio complaints since Jimmy's taken over uh, and we might get some on this one but that is not in any way his fault but uh, so when I share with you guys like the kinds of things that I have going on oh, I wish I could tell you more about this or that um, let's just go back in time so I can sh- now share with you the things that I'm talking about so and the and the many um, roadblocks that inevitably pop up along the way. So I, you know, I have the, this podcast, uh, you go back a year or so, this podcast is doing better and better. 
um, get more listeners. I have this uh, this show about psychedelics, a good trip that's doing well. We decide to put together this tour. The tour ends up um, coming together really well. It gets me on all of these podcasts because I have this big tour to plug, and that just makes it easier to get on a bunch of different podcasts that um, either I wouldn't normally be able to get on or people that hadn't heard of me but are interested in, oh, this guy's doing a crazy big tour, which made... And then when I have all of those podcasts and various marketing things in place it made it an easier sell to um to various uh venues it was easier to book more venues and add more cities and everything's off and running and so then we're gonna have an 85 city tour and end it in mid-february and then i'm gonna do a big six month long international tour in my representation at the time yep 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 i'm on top of all this and absolutely was not i ended up booking most of the tour um by myself and then um because i was uh told that that this international tour was all locked up and ready to go but this person was at best had their hands full um and was overselling their abilities as we all do no hard feelings i missed all of the deadlines for all of the international festivals that I was going to do. And so then I had to change my game plan. Okay, I was going to hope, hopefully record this special after uh, after the, the U.S. tour, then tour internationally, and then the special will be out when I'm done with the international tour, and then I'll do a follow-up to it called The Great Trip because I have a million other things to say, and a great uh, and a good trip is a great little introduction, and then we can dive deeper once people have already seen that, and that's the plan. Now the plan has changed, and now I don't have representation because I can't p- tolerate someone... Uh, that is not doing what they're supposed to be doing and telling me otherwise and flat out lying. And so these are just things that happen in the business once in a while. You don't take it too terribly personally, but this is the first time in my career that I, uh, it was, it was like, well, that, uh, sets my career back a full year, but I made some adjustments and, uh, and by the way, I'm just I like sharing all of these things because um, I think people are interested in it, and um, also because I because these aren't like these are great problems to have. Like I have an awesome uh, life, but it's still nice to um, share some of my problems so that um, people understand um, where uh, where I'm coming from. This is a big part of this podcast is when i'm when is applying some of this this research to bettering our lives and so the more i can share with you the various things that i go through with chronic depression or with now all of a sudden anxiety blah 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 that then then it attaches it to something and then also sharing more of myself helps you guys understand my many biases which there are many and so then once you get to know me better then you know my biases more and once you know my biases more you can see how the information is being filtered in ways that are uh, completely unknown to me and then you can um, maybe interpret things in a different way a more clear way free of my biases um so that's that's the wishful uh, thinking idea, anyway. And so so anyhow, little little bump in the road. I'm doing fine. I line up 
uh, I line up this big LA show at the end of January and I'll get all these industry people out to come and see it and then surely someone will make it a special how how could that not be the case people go absolutely apeshit for this and it's a huge successful tour that's like selling out almost every night and and uh, and this is no brainer um, so at that big LA show we weren't able to uh this is one of the reasons why you need representation is it be, makes it harder to get people inside of the industry when you're uh intentionally kind of outside of it and so there's like someone with um a big company a big person at a big company had to cancel like the day of and that was like the main thing I was kind of counting on and and um and so there's another setback. Okay, well, I'll just extend to the tour uh, through the summer, make it over 100 cities. And all of a sudden in February, my shows just started taking a massive hit. My mar- I do a lot of social media marketing, and all of a sudden they were getting incredibly expensive. It was uh, causing me panic. So I, I continued to expect all of the income that I was getting from the tour. And then all of a sudden I'm just like hemorrhaging, um, money on, on, um, marketing and advertisements and, and they're not paying off anything like they were. And, uh, I'm trying to figure out what's wrong with it. I'm getting a hold of different people inside of, uh, that work with social media. And then, um, I, I found out, um, a, a week ago, I was at a meeting with a bunch of um, psychedelic researchers and advocates and uh, influencers trying to figure out how to um, move forward with um, with advancing psychedelic therapy and and getting accurate and accurate information out to the public and and spreading the word and I do a lot of weird things guys I, I'm, I'm in a lot of the strange weird circles and so and then uh, someone started talking about how social media has started much like they've been filtering out for like various hate speech and blah, blah, blah. And there's this big issue. Is this freedom of speech? And uh, is this inhibiting freedom of speech? Or, you know, do we need to not have the KKK on Twitter and blah, blah, blah. If you've seen some of these stories in the news that I've, I've kept myself out of. Uh, well, now they've affected me apparently because they started um, running. Social media has started running alg- algorithms targeting certain things uh, to kind of bump down and censor and keep out of people's feeds. One of those things happens to be psychedelics, and so the reason why all of a sudden all of these social media ads that were helping spread the word and helping me find the psychedelic communities in each area just stopped working uh, nearly as well. They still work, just not nearly as well, and they're getting way more expensive. And um, and there's like all these things that I can no longer target that it's not you're not even allowed. To, and it's insanity. Uh, it's absolutely insanity. If you like, if any of you have seen um, the show and the positive, informative message that I'm doing. Uh, the idea that anyone's censoring it, but whatever, I'm used to this stuff. So anyhow, this is this is just like what you're up against when you're uh, when you're trying to <laughs> say something uh, interesting and true. People, uh, there's going to be a lot working against you. Scary, scary drugs that they've tricked your moms into 
fearing. So, anyway, I'm getting all political for no reason. Okay, so the tour is going to continue. So then I have all of these opportunities. I start doing this documentary, and I start sinking money into this documentary. Okay, the special will come out, then I'll have this documentary. And then I have all these ideas for docu-series, and, I, and because the tour has been so successful, I have gotten a lot of attention within the industry, and I have um, some various television projects one is directly very much an extension of the here we are podcast on television i just can't share with you i'm I'm starting to uh shop it around um mid-july i'll definitely keep you up to speed a lot of these things just never pan out um and or they change dramatically um and so you know the the less details for now the better um but there's a there's another show that's kind of like a a very science oriented and um and a couple other really really cool projects and and i have a lot of exciting um possibilities going on but all of my income is now on hold kind of waiting for the special to be made which i believe will be september now in austin at a place called the north door i believe it's like september uh, 23rd or so you'd think that'd be something that i would uh just have pulled up and ready to show you guys but i'm just this is kind of stream of consciousness i didn't like sit down and write all this out and plan it out i'm just sharing with you my life so what happened when all of a sudden i had paid off all of my debt from like uh, losing six months of work a while back and um, and doing all of these. Uh, like I've invest a lot. Everything that I make, I invest into this podcast and marketing myself and getting you know PR and getting more, getting the word out there. I put that back in to it. Um, outside of drinking too much, I and sometimes eating fancy foods. I don't spend money on anything else. I don't have. I don't have a home or any. I live on the road. I don't pay rent or anything else. Um, and so it all goes back into having this machine. So, so I, you know, I was. I was reinvesting at a PR person, still do, and, and an assistant, and then I ended up going with this other management company, Omnipop, because they rep people like Maria Bamford and Doug Benson and do a lot of, like, um, you know, kind of more independent um, scene-oriented stuff, which is kind of what I've been doing a lot of, and I want my focus to be in that, and um, and I need people to help me get some of these um projects off the ground um and and so uh so yeah so i have so everything's going like incredible other than income and that's why i started having um panic attacks back in uh february because i am uh, a little bit i have so many opportunities and trying to figure out what i have time for and what i do not is um and what what to invest my time into like say you're gonna go and put put a bunch of months and months or years of work into putting together some uh television show that you're gonna go and shop around and then it never goes anywhere then all of that time was for nothing it's kind of like playing the lottery or you can go and you can 
perform in stand-up clubs and have like more of a steady income and like have that not really lead anywhere at this point in my life and have that not be terribly satisfying i'd rather be putting together more tours and kind of doing this indie scene still doing some club works here and club work here and there and i do like doing regular shows once in a while um but it's not it doesn't like move things forward and it's just not as interesting it's not me talking about the things that i'm as passionate about that's september 23rd at the north door in austin um we'll hopefully get all of that up by mid-july and start spreading the word for everybody so um so the reason why i'm sharing with you all of this is so there you know i took uh I um, started working with Laughable, and they're, it's an exciting partnership, and they're a really cool company, and I believe in what they're doing. But whether or not I'll ever get any income from that is, like, who who knows? It'll certainly be a while before I do. Um, and that's, I mean, I, I was just, uh, you know, I'm excited to be working with them, and I'm happy to take the chance, but it's a small it's a, you know, it's a investing in a small business and small businesses are incredibly volatile and, uh, that's why I'm doing it. I'm like, I love, uh, I mean, it's a cool product and I'm also, um, I, I like, I like taking big risks and investing into, in any small business, like say being a stand up comedian is an incredible, uh, risk. So I started talking with some people recently um about and i hope you guys don't think that this is too long uh i'm self-conscious about it but i'm also pouring my heart out uh to you guys just so you know um what's happening because i believe people connect to that might be wrong write me give me feedback um but i started so i've been approached by a bunch of different networks and a bunch of different people and there's this really small company that for six months Um, I think a little longer than that. They've kind of been on me to work together on the podcast and help me out. And, uh, and first I was like, not interested. Um, and then I was like, well, I don't monetize this, so it's not worth either of our time to have this conversation and okay, I'll have a conversation and then talking things out. And through in that, within that, we realized that the best thing to do to keep this podcast on track because I need new thing. I just cannot dump any more money into this podcast because I'm broke. It's embarrassing to share that. I don't really need to share my financial um, situations with you guys, but this is why I started doing the Patreon um, a little while back. I wouldn't ask for money if I didn't need it. I was hoping I was going to have a special by now and then tours are to continue and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and so... But I don't, I don't mind sharing. I've been broke for a very long time, and I've been broke with like out having a bunch of possibilities and like really exciting things to look forward to. So this is like a great position to be in. I just want to kind of keep this momentum going and figure out how to generate income doing the things that I want to be doing rather than doing the things that I don't want to be doing, which at this point in my career is comedy clubs. I could go out and I could be working comedy clubs every week and I could be generating enough income to keep on paying for this podcast. But this podcast is uh, not as high a quality as it could be if I were able to dedicate more time. I used to be spending like 10 hours per episode prepping for these. I've been having to wing it forever. And a lot of that's just because I cannot dedicate X amount of my time 
to a thing that isn't um, paying me money when I'm broke. And then, you know, you have to bias your effort into the things that make you money. And so when I thought about the potential of doing... So basically what happened was I got a list of potential things. Like, would you be interested in... Here's a big list of potential companies. Do you use any of these things? Are there any of these things that you actually believe in that you would be interested in advertising so you don't have to feel like you're selling out or whatever, which is something that I'm self-conscious about. And um, so where it is right now, we haven't started, but I just started working with this group and um, and it's they're, they're not going to have any like control over anything that I say or anything like that, any of the creative parts of it, um, but they are going to be helping me getting more guests and helping me improve um, audio quality. Like I'm going to get headphone headset microphones for my guests because sometimes scientists really suck at using microphones because they don't have experience with it. Um, I'm hoping to get a little soundboard rather than just using this zoom that I'm using to, uh, potentially get more, um, higher quality, uh, audio. I'm, I'm hoping to, uh, I w I would love to stick a little more money into this documentary, um, that, I, but I don't have any, I mean, we can finish it with what we have, but we can make it great with a little more. And I kind of am really dreading like doing a Kickstarter or whatever. It might come to that. Who knows? But I, when I was thinking about having a stable income from this podcast, which is my favorite thing to do in my career, and I've, I just haven't been able to do it and I haven't been able to dedicate my time and I've been... I haven't been as confident on the podcast because I haven't been as prepared and I've been like kind of losing my mind lately and like just mentally unwell, to be honest with you. Uh, I'm not, I'm used to depression as you know, but I'm not used to anxiety. So it's a new thing that I'm figuring out how to manage, um, which is like good. Uh, depression's like a, a lot of everything's meaningless where anxiety is like, Hey, I have a lot of things to do. Let's, uh, let's get them done. And so, you know, I have a lot of things going on that I'm excited about. Um, and, uh, and that's wonderful. And it's also a source of uh, a lot of anxiety for me at the moment that I'm figuring out how to manage. Um, and so the idea of having a stable income off of making a weekly income off of this podcast and being able to not have to be on the road as much and maybe do something like, I think ideally I would love to do four regular episodes and one um, live episode every month. So we do five a month. I can't make any promises, but I, I'm just like, I hate that I haven't been doing this podcast every week. And I hate that I haven't been doing the research that I, that I want to be doing. And like, I'm able to uh, interview like Robert Sapolsky, my, one of my heroes. And, and uh, I can't even like finish, uh, his book, his new book before interviewing him because I just simply do not have the time because my time has to be spent on other crap that I don't want to be doing nearly as much. So what this will do, ideally, if I can make some money, it won't need to be much off of this podcast, is it will be something that is stable. So then I'm able to take bigger and bigger chances. Then I can take put time into taking the here we are to the next level which is 
um, making documentaries and television shows based on it. And so that's what's going on with the podcast. And that's why there is going to be some changes moving forward. I'm not sure when they're exactly going to take place. Um, but, um, you know, uh, I, uh, I just wanted to get everyone up to speed. And so I hope you appreciated it. Uh, and if you uh, if you didn't, I told you you could have fast forwarded all the way to the beginning. So that's a, that's or all the way to the beginning of what's about to start right now. Um, so that's on you. Um, but um, my guess is I'm being overly self conscious, and that you guys are responding to this because I'm making myself vulnerable, and that's what people attach to for a number of reasons, which you should sort of know about if you listen to this podcast. So. Um, blah 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 i uh if you have any thoughts or suggestions or anything like that always feel free uh to email me go to the here we are podcast.com website and click on that does it still say ask a scientist that's not at all what it's used for it's for you to communicate things to me now but you can click on that and communicate directly to me and uh, i'm starting to get a handle on my email so if you've emailed me before and you were expecting a reply and i didn't um please send me another one it got lost i wasn't ignoring you it just got lost um i've been overwhelmed lately um but anyway you guys are great and thanks for uh thanks for being interested in in uh what's going on um with the podcast and uh, in my career and moving things forward and trying to figure out new ways of communicating these things i think are incredibly important um to the public and so it it it's what drives me and that you guys are um always such lovely uh wonderful um people that are so inquisitive and want to know more is terrific so i will uh, i'll talk to you very very briefly at the end of the podcast um, about some exciting new episodes that we have coming up and uh other than that enjoy are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are Welcome, everybody, to the Here We Are podcast. Thank you. I'm Shane Moss, uh, and welcome to the uh, Psychedelic Science 2017, everybody. How about a hand for that? And so being that it's a psychedelic science um, conference, I thought it might be appropriate to have some researchers on who uh, who work with psychedelics. That seems reasonable, right? I was going to do a whole episode about zebras or something, but um, psychedelics is probably something that you guys are a little more interested in. So um, I have from uh, one of my good friends uh, and one of the first psychedelic researchers that I had on my show. Uh, he has a private practice in LA and is involved in the phase three studies with MDMA. Cole Marta is joining us. Cole. Take a seat. 
and then I have an, another researcher and the head of, uh, of Zendo. I'm probably butchering this intro right now because I got distracted with the sound things. But she is also working in the phase three studies and, um, at the Denver location and working with Zendo. So we're going to be talking a lot about MDMA and harm reduction today. Sarah Gale, everybody. <laughs> Well, thank you guys. It's nice to be here. Sarah, how bad did I butcher your intro? Just halfway. Yeah? You want to clear something up? <laughs> how, how would you introduce yourself? <laughs> yeah, so my name's Sarah. I, I was on the Phase 2 MDMA clinical trials in Boulder, Colorado, using MDMA for PTSD. And I'm also the director of the, uh, harm reduction at MAPS, uh, the Zendo project. So, really good intro. Um, what is it about Boulder, Colorado that makes it prime real estate for psychedelic research? Are, are there people there uh, a, a little more um, into... I, I've noticed a lot of man buns in Boulder, Colorado. Did you just do a count of man buns and then you're like, we'll just set up our research right yeah. here? Yeah, there's a direct correlation of man buns and um, in, enlightenment, enlightened thinking, because it kind of holds all the enlightened energy in the top of the head. <laughs> And Cole, can you talk a little bit about your research? Sure. I've um, done some research primarily with ketamine and depression. I did a review article, and that was published in the ketamine papers that was published by MAPS, uh, the, second, the second chapter of that book, uh, with my co-author, Wes Ryan, who's here somewhere at the conference. And I'm also involved in... Uh, setting up a site in Los Angeles for the phase three study for PTSD. So I'm actually, uh, I just started filming a documentary about psychedelics and one of the first little adventures, I'm also kind of making myself a guinea pig and um, I just went and had um, my first ketamine treatment uh, a couple weeks ago at, um, at Cole's office by um, by Terry uh, Early. Terry Early. Yes. And, <laughs> I'm so bad with names, guys. And um, and, and depression is is something um, that I've I've dealt with since the uh, since the age of ten or so. Is, is that I've had kind of chronic depression. It's it's my only like thing. I don't have like OCD or anxiety or any other kind of disorders that plague me. But chron uh, but chronic depression is one that has been uh, a mainstay and hard to hard to kick. Um, why is ketamine an effective treatment for depression? That's a really good question, uh, and we don't quite know the answer. We thought we were on to some kind of solution with uh, a model that involved the NMDA receptor, and because it's an NMDA receptor blocker, but uh, subsequent studies with other NMDA receptor blockers haven't borne nearly as much fruit as ketamine specifically. So. The mechanism's still a bit of a mystery, but uh, the the efficacy is is pretty well demonstrated at this point. So ketamine was a, a tranquilizer, uh, or is still a anesthetic, tranquilizer, yeah, an yeah. anesthetic. Um, as uh, oftentimes when you hear ketamine, you think horse tranquilizer. I think is is how what most people associate it as. I had like a pony dose, so it wasn't that. It wasn't that crazy. I didn't do the full horse. <laughs> Not a full horse. <laughs> Dose. But 
How how did this um, how was it discovered that uh, that a anesthetic could be used for therapy? Well, actually, it came from the anesthesia literature. Uh, ketamine was developed in the early '70s, I want to say. So it's been around for like 40 years as an anesthetic, and uh, they the anesthesiologists had noticed this phenomenon of people with depression seem to you know, have a response to their depression, even after ketamine for like a, a surgical procedure or something like that. Uh, and then in 2001, a psychiatrist did the first formal study of it. And the person who trained me came from an interdisciplinary pain team that was anesthesiologists, and he was the psychiatrist on that team. And so he got, you know, even before all the literature had come out, he, that's the benefit of interdisciplinary teams, I guess. So I had uh, I said I, I went through all of the screening and everything when I had my procedure and the myriad of surveys and and then I went to uh, I laid down on a couch and then I, I was told it was a disassociative and and that I was going to kind of go and do a different place so I was kind of uh, bracing myself for that a little bit um, I had uh, I've done DMT um, quite a bit and so I was kind of I was told it would be kind of similar I had the first shot. And I think he took it easy on me because it didn't do much. And then I, he gave me a second shot. And then, uh, and then I, st I was tripping, but I wasn't like disassociating. And so then he, uh, I watched the footage later, and he was like sweating. He nervously gave me a third shot. So he, he said, sometimes people that do psychedelics regularly need a little extra, and that turned out to be my case. And and I was told I was going to be out, but I was able to talk through the whole thing. So I got the third shot, I closed my eyes, and I saw like some sort of a ball or something like that that got closer, and then it kind of became this weird inner world, and then it seemed as if um, I was controlling this world or something, like I had built it. It, it, felt, it felt like I was throwing a surprise party for myself, like it felt like this, this world is some trick that I pulled on myself to get back to this, like ketamine was like this real world is like, hey, you're back. And I wish I've had similar things like that on DMT. And then, um, and then it felt like there was this um, responsibility to having created this world. And I kept on saying, um, as I was describing it, Dr. Terry said that, um, he, he said afterwards, he's like, well, it seems like guilt and responsibility are this common theme, um, uh, as I saw. And I have I have these amazingly hardworking parents. I had a very conservative Midwestern upbringing, and my parents worked like ninety hours a week and whatnot. And it was really, um, it, it was really installed, imprinted into me early on that you needed to work really hard all of the time. And if you didn't, you should be ashamed of yourself. And that's and, and it was like after that ketamine treatment that that it really kind of hit home for me how much um, oh. that affects me yeah, and it's yeah. it's interesting how how you can have this this state that's a completely different world and then kind of come up with these almost metaphors that relate to this perception. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, and that's really interesting. You know, one thing that hasn't been shown yet, or at least not that I'm aware of, I'd love to see it in the scientific literature is the value of the experiential aspect of it. So far, the 
really well-designed studies done by the NIMH, National Institute of Mental Health, have looked at the experiential aspect as this unwanted, you know, unfortunate side effect of dissociation and psychosis. Um, and Unwanted side effect of dissociation. <laughs> right, okay. I mean, and one of the things I've been, one of the scientific questions I've been trying to ask and answer since I sort of you know, became interested in science is, is there value to the experience itself? Because when they did try to minimize those side effects, they still had an effect on depression. However, when I was, talk when I was talking about the other NMDA receptor blockers that have been looked at, it's interesting that so far the only NMDA receptor blockers that are effective antidepressants have been ketamine and nitrous oxide, which both deliver this dissociative uh, subjective experience. So I, my sense is that there's some link there, but it, it, it's yet to be seen. So um, so always, usually I do these one-on-one, -on -one, and when I do live podcasts, I have multiple guests. So there's always the setting up of what people do. There's always like one person talking a lot, and then... Um, and then another person sitting there quietly. So, Sarah, why don't you tell us a little bit about MDMA, and then this will all work nicely into a nice, smooth-flowing um, conversation. Great. So, MAPS is going to be starting our Phase 3 studies, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD, very shortly. And uh, we, for the first phase and the second phase of the studies, which have been completed over the past decade, uh, we had... The results of those studies were very promising. So of uh, 86 participants who received MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, 67% of those participants no longer qualified for uh, PTSD at the end of their treatment, at their one-year follow-up. So those results are just unbelievable, incomparable. Um, they're an or order of magnitude greater than uh, any other treatment that's currently available. And the treatments that are currently available suppress the symptoms of PTSD. So usually when someone is uh, struggling with the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, they're experiencing anxiety, they're experiencing depression, and so the medication that they will receive will be medication that's focused on working with depression or anxiety. And uh, as we know, those medications don't address the root causes of, of trauma and the symptoms. They just merely mask the symptoms. And so MDMA is the opposite of that. It really helps people uh, process the emotions and the trauma that is stored in their physical body, that is stored in their, um, their mind. So it really addresses the, the deep-rooted psychological, emotional, and physical manifestations of trauma and uh, helps people really heal from the experience and integrate their experience into their lives so that they can move on. Uh, for people with PTSD, they are stuck in this place where they're experiencing these trauma symptoms from an event that may have happened a long time ago. Um, I think the average uh, for the participants that were in our phase two Boulder study, the average amount of time that those participants had been uh, experiencing symptoms of PTSD was in the upwards of 20 I believe it was about 20 years that these people uh, were struggling with this. So uh, it was treatment-resistant PTSD. They had tried many, many different things, and this was the thing that finally worked for them. 
Well, so anytime, uh, anytime that I have a negative emotion, what I like to do is I like to just not think about it and press it down as much as I can and just get it out of the old noggin. And I, just ignore it. And, and, yeah, just ignore it and, and push it away. And I've noticed lately that it seems like it's kind of filling up down there and, 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 and almost starting to kind of crystallize and almost get stronger. Um, right. so, some of these things are even kind of popping right back up into my into my consciousness where uh, I prefer they not be. Right. Um, why why doesn't repressing ideas work? Why can't your brain just go? Uh, yep, don't need that document anymore. File delete. Right, right. Well, I think all of our experiences, especially traumatic experiences, need to be processed, and so those negative, uncomfortable experiences, naturally people would shy away from those experiences. This is just my thoughts on that. Um, and the MDMA actually allows for people to tolerate those extremely negative emotions. And so, you know, for what, why we can't just ignore, you know, these events, I don't know, but um, probably something to do with evolutionary biology. You know, it's important for us to to learn from these experiences and to fully, uh, you know, pro push through, process through, and we know that this strategy of burying it down doesn't really work. I mean, working with veterans, so many of them end up using alcohol to bury it down, uh, isolating from their family and friends because they're losing control of the ability to bury it down, and it comes spilling out so easily. Um, you know, the classic kind of veteran case that I remember from my training would be somebody who does so well for 20, 25 years, finds a job where they don't have to work with any other people. Uh, when they're at home, they tinker in the garage by themselves. Uh, and, you know, one day somebody does the wrong thing and they end up, you know, assaulting their boss or assaulting a police officer. You know, it's like low incidence but high intensity events for these people that it comes spilling out like that. So it's not a successful strategy. Um, it does seem like the, the, the mind is better at remembering things, especially these really salient, important moments where if you were in danger or you know something, uh, or you, you made some, you erred in some way, um, the brain is a process of learning, we'll, we'll try to remember. And it, it's, it seems like there's these kind of open loops in the brain sometimes that, um, I, like I'm amazing at procrastinating. Um, uh, like I can I can put off uh, all of my responsibilities for years. It's uh, it's like really record setting. And but but until I actually get a task done or or take action on a task, it it just keeps on. The more things pile up, it just keeps on popping up and popping up in my mind, and it's incredibly distracting, and I can't think about other more productive things, but once I start taking action and processing them, it feels as if it kind of closes this loop in a way. Right. Um, is that a little bit of, of kind of what's happening with sort of processing and um, integrating these, these negative memories? Yeah, so people talk about this concept of unresolved trauma. So in, especially in the field of somatic psychotherapy, where people really work with the body uh, in the therapy process. Not, not body work, but working on um, 
really attending to how the trauma shows up and where we hold it in our body as, as trauma, as energy, trauma energy. Uh, Gabor Mate talks about, about trauma and we have, um, you know, Stan Groff here uh, talks about transpersonal trauma and intergenerational trauma. So not just biographical, your own life experiences, but the possibility that we actually carry this transgenerational trauma from our ancestors that gets passed down through the lineages. And, and, um, so trauma is, it, in, in, it results in incomplete, uh, unresolved, um, emotions, energy, and, it actually gets, uh, many uh, therapists say, it gets stored in our physiology, actually gets trapped in, in our minds and in our physiology. And so uh, uh, the process when you're working with MDMA or when you're doing uh, another treatment that uses uh, the body or works with trauma, you're really working on completing a process that didn't get pr uh, completed. So when we experience a traumatic event, we are uh, triggered into a fight, flight, freeze response. And so, um, those memories of the fight, flight, freeze, as humans, we actually, we actually store those experiences. When you see an animal who experiences trauma in nature, they'll run away from the predator, and when they get away, they, well, the first thing they do is they shake it off. And we, as a culture, and because of our very highly active prefrontal cortex, our thinking mind, we don't have that, we have that natural response, but there's different societal expectations and beliefs that actually prevent us from allowing ourselves to shake and move and process that energy. Or we're stuck in situations like when we're, when we're children where there's abuse at home, sexual trauma, physical trauma, these things where we actually can't get away from it. Right, where we're actually stuck in those situations and that causes this chronic trauma response. So what we see um, out there in the world, even for people who don't have PTSD, is this is a, a pretty intense world we live in, pretty intense time to be alive. I guess it always has been, but um, we really experience these little traumas on a day-to-day. -day. So with the MDMA therapy, we're working on this thing called post-traumatic stress disorder, but we all carry these traumas that we've held in our, in our system. And um, so this work with MDMA is really about helping those unresolved traumas, uh, those fight, flight, freeze responses, helping us experience the trauma in a new way. You actually, with the MDMA, have the traumatic memories and remember them, but not in a way that re-traumatizes, really in a way that helps you reframe the experience and, um, and make sense of it in a way where you are noticing, okay, here I am, I'm safe right now, this thing happened, I can relegate it to the past rather than having it control my life every day by being in a in a trauma response of, of wanting to fight or wanting to flee or dissociate all the time. So, um, you may not be able to um, answer this. I'm wondering how much, um, as you bring up culture, I'm wondering how much cultural influence there is if there's varying rates of PTSD in other regions. So I had, I had a very kind of a strict but very wholesome Midwestern upbringing. I would, I would describe my, um, my upbringing as very like leave it to beaver, like white picket fence, like everyone is just, oh, you know, it's real nice. You know, Wisconsin, it's just, sure is nice around here. You know, my parents are from Iowa and it's just, everyone's so nice. And, and there's a couple of really easy to follow rules um, to, to be nice all the time. What you do is you talk about the weather and you talk about the Packers and literally nothing else. And and if you uh, if you 
are going through a hard time or feeling a little uh, depressed or something, well, why don't you just try smiling more? <laughs> and, and so there's all these different environments, but other cultures might, uh, and, and other people's upbringings, they might be very open. You might have, you might have uh, um, two veterans in the same trench um, go through the exact same horrific experience. One gets home, tells his family about it, goes to therapy, writes a book about it, never needs this MDMA stuff. Other people might, because they uh, might feel like they're doing a disservice to the, their fallen brotherhood by kind of complaining about this stuff, might, might, not, ever, um, might not ever address it. And they, uh, one has PTSD, the other one has a, a normal life. It, can you comment at all on any kind of cultural variance? Absolutely, like you definitely hit on a uh, a big issue that you know not everybody who's experiences and not everyone who experiences trauma, even if they're at the same event, the same sort of inciting trauma, develops this PTSD response. And it's it's a really fascinating and interesting question. We know that there are a lot of um, different things that predispose somebody to develop PTSD, um, and but. I think culturally that that question really fascinates me and one of the the challenges to the work so far has been that predominantly the people who have been recruited have been uh, of have been Caucasian of a particular age range and so as this work progresses there we're really hoping to find a way to enroll and to tap into other uh, cultures other uh, a more diverse uh, group to explore some of those themes. So as we're talking about um, moving into phase three and, and potentially um, uh, amazing new future where, uh, where clinical use of MDMA and hopefully other psychedelics uh, becomes legalized, this is going to it's definitely going to shift a lot of things in our culture. I had, my my history with drugs was not, I didn't have, you know, a lot of people there, our, our ancestors had upbringings where psychedelics might have very well been a, a normal part of rituals and ceremonies and may have, um, you, you know, and you're doing these things with your parents for your, your first time. And, um, it, you know, this is this is part of uh, your earlier experiences, and, and it's supervised, and and there's these traditions, and you see how it's done, and then there's these clinical settings where uh, uh, where everything is kind of very carefully measured, which is completely different than what my history was, which was I, I was just a rebellious person. I didn't fit into this nice little Midwestern upbringing, um, despite despite uh, this innocent looking face of mine, thank you. Um, and I, I was, as soon as I was like 15, 16 years, as soon as I had the opportunity, as soon as I was offered, I was just like, yes, give me all the drugs. And, and, um, and it, I made so many mistakes along the way and, as, and I've learned so much from those mistakes too, but the path could have been easier, which is now I have a much more measured, um, like, I still want to do all the drugs, but like in a reasonable way, like in a safe, uh, in a safe way. And Sarah, you work with, uh, with Zendo, which is often having to confront these, 
uh, young, reckless youths like I was, I'm, I still kind of am, um, that are that are going and, and doing, uh, that don't know that maybe psychedelics uh, aren't necessarily the best uh, party drug in the entire world in every situation. Um, sometimes better used as a meditative therapeutic aid. And, uh, but, uh, but they've heard about this stuff and they, uh, they, they hear that doing this ecstasy stuff it will somehow make you tolerate rave music, which I'll never understand. Um, sorry, I know that's the edgiest shit that I'll say, uh, up here to, to this crowd. Um, but, um, but what, can you, can you set up what Zendo is, um, for, well, because Cole, you also work with Zendo, but, but Sarah, you're the, the head of, um, What's the title again? Director. Yeah. Oh, director. Well, even better. Um, so can you talk about uh, Zendo? One sec. And Sarah was the supervisor on my first ever Zendo session, so she's always been my uh, my authority on the on the subject. <laughs> yeah. So Zendo, the Zendo project was started by Maps. So it's a, a Maps organization, and uh, Maps has been doing this thing called psychedelic harm reduction for a long time. Uh, they worked in Boom in Portugal in the early 2000s, providing, in, in Portugal, it's drugs are decriminalized for personal use, and so Boom is this festival where people can come and, and openly take psychedelics in an environment that is supportive of that. And they have psychedelic support services or harm reduction at Boom Festival, and so MAPS helped in the early days to set that up. And there's been a lot of people who've been involved with MAPS uh, who have gone and volunteered and uh, put in their time working in these recreational environments. And the, so the Zendo project specifically was started in 2012 and it was born at Burning Man. And what we do is we create a safe space and specialized care for people who are having challenging psychedelic experiences. So what we offer is is peer-to-peer -peer support. So we're not doing therapy, we're doing peer counseling. And it is myself and others who work on the project. A lot of us are mental health clinicians, the people who are the supervisors. But our volunteers come from all walks of life. There's uh, people who are in other healing professions, massage therapists, acupuncturists, and then people who are software engineers and computer programmers. And um, there's, there's people from everywhere. And, and what we really believe in the Zendo is that it's a natural human inclination to be able to support and hold space for each other. And it's something that we've forgotten and how to do, but it, so Zendo is more about unlearning those things that keep us separated and that forgetting of, of how to, to be present uh, with someone who's having a challenging uh, situation, whether they're tripping on or not, right? So people who come into the Zendo, we receive a lot of people who are just having challenging psychological or emotional experiences, and they may or may not be actually altered on a substance. So since 2012, the Zendo has helped over 2,000 guests and we've trained uh, over 1,500 volunteers. And our model has been used all around the world by different groups who've self-organized to offer similar services in their communities. So the other aspect of our work is uh, education. So in addition to direct service, we really want to help share these resources that we've learned, these ways in which we've found these, uh, to be helpful in supporting someone in an experience. And we have these principles. They are creating a safe space, sitting and not guiding, 
talking through and not down, and difficult is not the same as bad. And we provide these trainings, and then people go and, and they create similar things in their communities, or they come and volunteer directly with the Zendo. And um, we also provide trainings at universities, so not just in festival environments. And we really want to get the message out there that it's not just about the festival environment, which is this very unique uh, environment where people really come, and, and uh, psychedelics is just one of the ways that people people explore their consciousness, and including music and yoga and other things. Uh, and there's been a, a real resurgence in these tra so-called transformational festivals, like Envision Festival, Lightning in a Bottle, Burning Man, and some would argue Burning Man's, would argue that Burning Man's not a festival, but <laughs> just put that out there. Um, so really, what I see is that, like you said, Shane, people have been using these substances for thousands of years in different contexts, and there used to be so in the therapeutic context currently, as well as in the ceremonial context where these, where certain medicines have been used, there is a container. There is intention, there is awareness, there is a community to hold their experience. And it's in the past, in different cultures, it's used as a rite of passage, as an initiation experience. So, you know, in the West, we discovered psychedelics in the past hundred years and like, oh, what are these things? And we're just like a bunch of like little kids, just uh, and um, not really, you know, not really taking into account the I mean, I was still studying intentions. I was like, I want to be super cool. And then, the intention and then was to be super eating cool. Eating way too many psychedelics. And, yeah, I was super cool, actually. It did work out. Um, yeah, it's like, um, you know, I'm not an anthropologist or historian, but I've heard that, you know, this relationship that we have now in the Western world with psychedelics is the exception that historically even in the western world there were sacred and you know ritualized and thoughtful uses of substances that cause or uh, you know even experiences not always involving substances but altered states of consciousness uh, and so yeah the, I think the what we're sort of still working with is developing our own wisdom tradition with these things and we've now had the benefit of, you know, Groff and that generation uh, laying some framework in the 60s, but yeah, I mean, it was sort of, psychedelics were this powerful class of molecules and tools dropped on completely unsuspecting, you know, people in the West. And um, something really cool is, you know, the work that Zendo does in dealing with the growing pains of developing that wisdom tradition and um, that their, their stated goal, which I think is really amazing, is to sort of train their self, themselves out of needing to do it anymore. Like to train enough people and for enough people in every community to understand these kinds of um, fundamental tools and mindsets and set and setting and to understand the work that they do at Zendo to the point that it's no longer necessary. Well, even if all of this stuff were common knowledge, and we all had an upbringing where we were incredibly informed about this stuff, things like Zendo at festivals would still be absolutely necessary because um, there's so many individual differences. There's so sometimes you might be like low in blood sugar. You could be you could do something you've done a hundred times and it has an adverse reaction one time. I actually 
Um, I actually had a little uh, a little help a, a few days ago. I happen to be um, so I have a, I have an annoyingly high tolerance for um, for most psychedelics. It seems. But marijuana, I have an exceptionally low, low, low tolerance for. I, it wasn't always the case, but I just don't smoke much more. And, and especially when I mix with alcohol, uh, things go wrong. Well, why do you think it is that there isn't something like Zendo at every single nightclub in the country, every single festival in the country? Why, why isn't this a, uh, a, it should be a requirement? That's a great question. So, uh, so different events and uh, event producers over the decades have had psychedelic support services at their shows. Uh, Whitebird, RockMed, there's organizations out there uh, way back, even Woodstock, you know, had some support, some psych psychedelic support services. So it's a tradition that has been around. And the, the tools that we use in the Zendo are not brand new. Uh, they are built off of generations of knowledge and wisdom that is held by these elders, these pioneers in the field of psychedelics and psychedelic therapy. And there are, especially here in the U.S., there are certain political, our political climate and the drug war and prohibition make it a particular challenge to bring these support services to events. There's a, a law out there called, there's an act out there called the, the, um, the Rave Act, which essentially states that if you offer these support services at your events, that you're potentially more liable if something were to happen that were a drug-related incident because you're admitting that there's drug use at your event. And which this is the, the same law, the same act that made it uh, illegal for a lot of rave, uh, raves to provide um, bottled water at their events. So many people have heard of this. It's ludicrous. And as far as we know, there's been no actual action taken with the Rave Act. So in terms of there's never been an event producer who was persecuted under this act. But just having it there is enough of a, of a fear for some producers to be very hesitant in bringing these services to their events. So that is one reason. And then uh, there is just cultural stigma and fear around psychedelics. But the... The producers that we work with and the events that we attend, they know that this is the primary importance, this is the, the safety of their attendees, and they've decided that that takes precedence and importance over this, this act, and that they're going to choose this over here uh, as the better option, and that if you are... If you were having an event where you're having musicians and you're just turning a blind eye and saying, oh, no drugs here, and you're un unwilling to provide those services at your event, frankly, you shouldn't be having a music event because the reality is that this is, this is the reality we're in. People are going to take substances they have and they're going to continue to. So uh, we can either make it more dangerous for them or we can try to keep people safe. I, it, I think it's like analogous to like sex education. Yeah, I think it's analogous to sex education, abstinence like this abstinence training. only. Yeah. yeah, like abstinence only method doesn't work, especially with teenagers and you know people exploring something that they're passionate about. I mean, sure, prohibition is killing children left and right, but it's the thought that counts. <laughs> um, I I want to um, I, I want to quick because I want to be able to open up to a, a few questions we have uh we have less than 15 minutes left and i want to make sure you guys get an opportunity to ask some questions if you'd like um but before that 
Um, it's 2017. When was the last psychedelic science conference? 2013. 2013. So this is my first one. You guys were both here for the last one, I imagine. Um, can you? Yes. Uh, what have you noticed? This is this is now the, the third, fourth day of the conference. Have, have you noticed um, a difference? Because to me, um, having done psychedelics my whole life, but not really being familiar with um, these various groups and whatnot until I started doing this this show, and so maybe I'm just biased because I just started in, um, getting introduced to all these different organizations. But to me, it seems like this is kind of, um, how do you guys feel? It seems like this is kind of a, a special time for psychedelics. It seems like people are becoming a bit more knowledgeable um, than 10, 20 years ago, right? Have you noticed anything even in just like the last four years? Any Anything encouraging or anything that you're, that you're worried about? I mean, and, and the time is right, too, because we have just the perfect administration to fix everything and, uh, and make everything great again, so that's encouraging. Um, I like that some people are like, I had no idea I was joking. Uh, what the fuck is this guy talking about? Um, uh, so, so what have you noticed? And you, don't, you can go back further than four years if you want, just in the course of your career. Uh, what I've noticed different from 2013 is the, the caliber of the science being presented is, I mean, it wasn't bad in 2013, it was just in its infancy, and I feel like the science itself is entering its adolescence now, like, we're, we have some very extremely well-designed, you know, double-blind placebo-controlled trials that are wrapped up in phase three, nothing... To my knowledge, there has never been a phase three study funded by donations and by the community support of the people who are going to be affected by these treatments. Like, the National Institute of Mental Health, National Institute of Health, government, basically, government grants and pharmaceutical companies, to my knowledge, are the only, comp or the only institutions that have ever succeeded at getting a phase three study, uh, even a, a trial for a phase three study. So it's really historic and a remarkable statement that, th you know, the, the restriction is the cost. And the fact that there's that much support for this kind of work is really telling that, you know, there's really no way to stop this thing. And that's Amazing. It's so. amazing to me how much support you guys get with the FDA and having such a uh, such a good relationship with with the FDA and, and that um, you have gotten approval. And I mean, the DEA is still. I'm trying to use the academic term, a bunch of fucks. Um, but 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 it is so cool that uh, that this is within the system. This is working within the system. Right. There's a lot of progress being made. Yeah. There's. There were some, luckily, some rational pathways that were left in, you know, in the legislation, and it took uh, someone like Rick Doblin and Maps and uh, incredible group of people, an incredible community of people behind him, to find that trail, sniff it out, and blaze the path. Sarah, have you? Uh comments on, on uh, what you've seen in terms of change? 
Yeah, I, I feel that the seeds have really been planted. So, you know, over the past few decades, there's been these seeds planted by these pioneers in psychedelic research that have really done a lot of heavy bushwhacking, a lot of heavy legwork to get us where we are today. And there's this, it it's really feels like the blossoming of that, really, that there were these seeds planted and that they've grown and that now we're really seeing this, this blossoming. Um, and it, it, it's taken a lot. And, you know, the, the researchers that are doing this work now are, are, are able to do this work because of the hard work of so many people for so many years. And there is this huge momentum right now, especially with the agreement of the FDA to move forward after, after uh, releasing the, you know, the results of the phase two and phase one studies, where uh, there's a lot of excitement because we're, we're really seeing that there, there's an, not an end in sight, but there is a, a turning point. You know? And with 2021, with our uh, desire for legalization by 2021, um, there is, there's just this momentum of really realizing like this is actually possible. We can actually do this. And so it's just, it's just tremendous how I've, yeah, how that has grown. And even in the five years since I've been working at MAPS, there has been this just building momentum. And I think that there's a building excitement. And, you know, with the current political climate in this past year, there's definitely, uh, you know, it's definitely a really challenging challenging time that we're in and I think a lot of people realize that we need effective treatments and that there's not time for us to be working with you know ineffective treatments or or limited treatments that are out there and so I think that there's the government support and FDA support I think that they see um, that you know this is this is an epidemic PTSD is an epidemic and we really you know I believe that PTSD is or trauma is at the root of a lot of other symptoms so um, depression anxiety and things like that so PTSD is one of those things that is really important for us to to work on finding um, effective treatments for because it really ripples out and it doesn't just affect people who have it but their entire families and their entire communities and this is you know this is the largest psychedelic conference here at psychedelic science 2017 that as far as we know has ever existed so that's a really big deal it's a monumental time so the next time the next time we all get together mdma might very well be legal for clinical use if it stays in on 2021 um and uh I, I mean, uh, PTSD and, and depression and all these uh, things are, but I mean, we, we might also uh, be able to uh, eventually use psychedelics to increase overall well-being. Like, you, you, can, you don't necessarily need to have a disorder to gain benefit from psychedelics. That's, um, uh, that's something that I think is often um, neglected because we, we definitely have to uh, help the people that need the, the help most first, but once it is um, legalized for clinical use, will it will it be will it be for clinical use specifically for this treatment? Uh, what what kind of restrictions will be in place at that time? That that's the the model that we're working within, right? So um, it's really interesting. Uh, Marty Seligman from University of Pennsylvania, um, and one of the sort of founders of positive psychology movement. Saw him give this awesome TED talk where he talked about the unfortunate consequences of medicalizing the psychology, you know, like the study of the psyche itself being co-opted by the medical uh, paradigm. 
has, you know, one of the benefits has been that it has been addressed the suffering, men mental health suffering, you know, with the same kind of uh, vigor and scientific validity that we use to address other kinds of uh, suffering and, and uh, illness. But uh, unintended consequence has been that it only focuses on, you know, dysfunction. And so I think the positive psychology movement is a model to be looking at for people interested in seeing how how that plays out and how they uh, you know get get the study of sort of maximizing what he what Sullivan calls flourishing like uh, personal flourishing more than just free of dysfunction and free of like uh, you know um, yeah free free of specific ailment it's also you know, there's this other whole part of the psyche and of the experience that could benefit more than just being free of, of a noticeable, measurable dysfunction. So I think the positive psychology movement is an interesting place to look for as a, as a model for, for, you know, investigating that. But, um, but right now, absolutely, uh, we're, we're, when it becomes available, as a treatment, it will be for these specific indications. That's the way it works. Well, I mean, there's also positive psychology can be biased, and there's costs, and you get tuned to positive psychology, and then you have to be annoying all your friends with your lectures about the secret. And so there's definitely costs involved there, which I don't know if you've noticed that spreading around. Um, but um, uh, but I, I do think that we have this evolved negativity bias, and sometimes definitely do focus too too much on on, um, on the most negative uh, effects and so much of our focus goes to that. Does anyone have any, uh, any questions? Uh, could you just like raise your hand or something and maybe come up here and use a uh, microphone? Zero questions. Um, all right. Paul, you were speaking about the medical industry paradigm. So both of you, how would you want the medical uses of these um, psychedelics to be protected, in what ways could policies shape that? How would I want these, uh, the medical uses to be protected? Oh, oh, I think that's oh, going to be a huge Oh, big pharma concern, them, them getting sure, in. Sure. I don't, luckily, you know, big pharma, you know, the... This is one of those situations where, again, an unintended consequence. The fact that corporations are beholden to uh, shareholders legally, like CEO can literally be fired for making a decision that they knew they could have made a different decision to make more money. Um, you know, this model is, with MDMA specifically, I'm not too worried about it because it's three times that people use the MDMA. So drug companies, unless they start... Uh, you know, trying to package and sell therapy modalities, which the FDA doesn't even have like a context for that. So I don't think that's happening anytime soon, luckily. Yeah, that's the key piece there is it's MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. It's not just MDMA. So because MDMA is a known molecule, it can't be patented. It's only going to be used a few times. And so there's not really uh, the concern there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I apologize. I actually ran out of time um, for uh, for more questions. Um, uh, I, I, uh, but here's what I want to say, um, guys. I, I 
I've spent 20 years um, as a psychonaut really exploring most of this stuff by myself. I typically trip by myself. I wrote this act um, and uh, I started sharing my experiences not knowing um, how, how big the, uh, the psychedelic community was. I never saw myself doing anything like this and having done a um, hundred shows on this tour uh, and performed this show to um, uh, to so many different audiences all over the country, I have to say that I cannot believe how amazing and smart and kind and wonderful uh, the psychedelic um, community is and how knowledgeable all of you guys are. And uh, it's a real pleasure to be up here, so thank you guys so much. How about a hand for Cole and Sarah, everybody? Enjoy the rest of the conference. You guys are terrific. Thank you. Next week on the program, return guest, sex researcher Nicole Prazi joins me, and I sit on her couch in a lab where people masturbate, and we talk about many common misconceptions about sexual addictions and porn and uh, orgasms and all sorts of fun stuff. I recommend, if you haven't before, you know, if, if you're just tuning into this podcast, just so you know, starting from the beginning, there is a lot of like kind of prerequisite information. I try not to get too repetitive um, with things, although repetition can be important for memory, so we do repeat some stuff. And each episode is meant to stand alone by itself, but oftentimes, especially in the case where there's a return guest, there is information from past episodes that is helpful to know. So say this is one of your first episodes that you've listened to, and now you're hooked and you can't wait to hear about sex research. It would probably be a good idea to go back to one of the first episodes when I was still a, a shy boy, just a young man, and not the confident um, <laughs> adult that I have grown up to be. Um, you guys have heard me go through puberty and have that awkward teenage years, and now I'm a wise um, shaman um trying to help out the children of the next generation and so if you go back you can hear me talking to nicole um about some of her other work her her work has changed um her kind of career path has changed quite a bit in the last several years and so it's just a really good introduction and it will also be very different so you don't need to worry about it being too repetitive but it will help you be a little more informed so just throwing that out there um and then um other than that thanks for uh thanks for uh letting me um get everything off my chest that's always even when it's a a whiny um annoying privileged monkey on your back it's still a monkey that weighs you down unnecessarily so and sometimes just talking it out sharing it with the folks helps a lot and so um i'm already feeling benefits from having recorded that intro i already feel better and so that is why those of you that listen to all the way 
to the end, the ones that are listening to the details that other people might be like, oh, that's not very important. Well, sometimes they kind of are, and sometimes those little details might be a little boring and annoying, but they are important nonetheless, and sometimes they're wildly interesting. It depends on how who you are, but... Uh, those of you that, that listen through all of this are, of course, my favorite. How could you not be? And that's why you're my favorite. So thank you very much. Let's say uh, Seinfeld was on an island and he was blowing Boris Karloff. What would, it, what would that be like? <laughs> it might go something like this. Oh, Mr. Karloff. I loved you and Frankenstein, and I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mr. Seinfeld, I'd love having you fuck 